right, hey guys, I'm Alex Simmons, here again with uh, History According to Pirates, here discussing counterculture in the 1970s and, you know, all time periods. We'll get off task, I'm sure. But yeah, I'm Alex Simmons, here to discuss. I'm Jose Garcia. I'm Pat Mom, <laughs> also known as Pat Mom. Hey, Mark Johnson. Okay, Mark Johnson, the, the 70s was the highlight of my life. In fact, I went to high school through the 70s. So that's my era. I'm Matt Norling, not Bill Walton, and I was a kid during the 1970s. And then there's Pat Mullahan, Pat the Gays Mullahan. Oh, Patrick Mullahan. I didn't know if anybody else was going to go. I didn't want to cut anybody off. But yeah, Patrick Mullahan. <laughs> yeah, still getting this whole Zoom thing down. Yeah, actually, I'd like to start out real quick, like talking about our time periods and our ages real quick, because like, as we get into the 70s and the 80s, talking generally about time periods, this is where it gets very um, interesting to me about your guys' experiences, especially Mark. Uh, Jose, I'm not sure exactly how old you are. You have such a youthful figure about you, but I, uh, <laughs> I hear you're the oldest in the department. You're the oldest in the department, right? I don't think so. I, I I'm, I'm, only, was about I'm only 50. Rude. <laughs> I'm only 50. Only 50. Okay. But yeah, like real quick, like what are our ages? I kind of can go first. I'm 20. Oh my God. Now I got to remember what, how old I am. I'm 27. Yeah, I'm 27. So I was born in 92. And so a lot of this stuff I'm really disconnected from and I've learned vicariously through teachers primarily and my father who grew up in the 80s and was a kid in the 70s. And so he, he's my big touchstone for this time period. I'll probably talk about him later, but when were you guys born? What's your connection to the 70s? Hey, I was born in 61. So by the time 1970 came around, we moved to Yakima. So I spent my junior high and high school years in the 70s. I graduated in 1979. I am 59 years old. I think I'm the next oldest. I was born in 1964. Um, so I'm 56 now. And I entered the 1970s basically at the same time that I entered elementary school. The 69-70 uh, school year was my kindergarten year. And uh, by 1979, I was in ninth grade. Okay, that, I would be the next oldest. I was born in 1969. And in fact, I was born on the three days after Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Cool. So you guys can go figure out when that was. So exactly three days. We already talked about space race. Yeah, that's right. You know, we're, we're going through the space stuff right now, and uh, that's what that's when I was born. And uh, but I, I lived in Mexico for the first decade of my life, so uh, we did not experience 1970s in Mexico like we did here. So, the the 1970s were well, I spent them in a, I spent them in a in a little pueblito over there in the village. That's where I spent all my time. So your 1970s were uh, were still the early 1900s. <laughs> I'd be curious to hear how that lines up. True that. In many ways, they were. We had no electricity, no plumbing, uh, very few cars. I mean, talk about social isolation, baby. That's that was us. So this stuff, this is all good to me. I mean, hey, let's just bring it on. Anyway. So I wonder if down the line, yeah. So I wonder if down the line we could take like that perspective of like, I wonder if the gap between America's kind of advancement and other countries was that maybe one of its peaks in the 70s, like that gulf seems massive. But I know that Mexico today, there are still many places without power, yeah. without internet, without that kind of access. So yeah. maybe that'd be something interesting to talk about. Maybe yeah, people were late, feeling that on. separation. Mm -hmm. Okay, sounds at good. At that time. Next. 
Well, I'm I'm probably the next oldest. I'm I'm 33, born in 1986, right? <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, and so yeah, again, I did not experience the 70s. I my my experience through it was through, you know, the stories told of the time, and and I actually developed a huge love for a lot of the the 70s music. Um, Earth, wind, and fire. So, 70s on seven. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. So I, I grew up, I, I grew up listening to a lot of that. And so through that realm, I experienced the seventies as much as uh, a millennial could, I think um, in that way. But See, I was raised by an eighties hippie father who did, had a Sweet. healthy disdain for disco and the mainstream. <laughs> he was the grunge kid. He listened to Nirvana and stuff when they first came out when I was like, <clears throat> newborn kid he hated that stuff so i grew up with a real distaste for the mainstream and the pop culture so maybe i'll disagree with you on the on the soul music well, that's, and the that's disco actually the perfect segue right on. to to the idea of the topic of the counterculture of the 70s how about um, mr gaze but what about the sixth character oh yeah pat the gaze malahan with the 90s hair coming back no early mid-2000s hair coming back uh, Who are you? How old are you? i was sharing pictures with uh Katie DeHaven this morning and she said I looked like Justin Bieber so either she's blind or I'm taking it as a compliment or an insult but um yeah I was born in 1990 so I'm a little bit kind of sandwiched between Pat and Alex I don't know I'm, I'm almost 30 oh you your parents oh I have a story about once I tell you what the gaze is <laughs> in in academia um I, I have a really funny story from a conference I gave at University of Oregon about that Sure. Patrick, your parents are a little bit older though, right? Yeah, my parents were born in uh, 49 and 50 respectively. Um, I was adopted. Um, so they were 40 when I was adopted. So, so did you ever... many people's grandparents' age. Yeah, like that, that's the, my grandparents' age actually, yeah. So did your parents ever talk to you about the 70s? Were you ever curious? Did you ever get stories yeah. from them, how they felt about it? I mean, I've got some stories. I mean, I don't know if I'm supposed to share it now or, or later, but... I think that would be a good time. We've kind of been going on that route. Okay. Um, so my dad was a big outdoorsman, big hiker and stuff. So um, as if I, I, I kind of gave this in the baccalaureate speech i don't know when that'll be but um my my dad was he did he was the seventh man ever to do the pacific northwest trail which is from yellowstone to the coast it's three thousand miles and uh he did that in 1979 and um or sorry 1000 miles not 3000 miles did it in three months and um he, he said that that was very life-shaping for him and that 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 hike to me is kind of a metaphor for how my dad viewed the seventies, not as an escape, but that he said that he was in the fifties and sixties totally loved music and all that stuff. Um, like the Beatles were his favorite band and he was totally current on all that. But then in the seventies when it was disco and then later in the eighties when it started becoming this quote unquote classic rock that he wasn't as into that. So he continued to listen to the tracks from the fifties and sixties. And I think that kind of like the way that he kind of, leaves to go on this hike is kind of how he kind of was less satisfied with mainstream culture in the seventies as he was in the sixties. So he kind of left it, so to speak. Um, my mom, the stories I have about the seventies, everything has to do with the farm. My mom was a farmer. Um, so I, I don't know. It's also interesting because the, the longer that time goes on, the harder it is to get, 
reliable information out of my mom and dad because my dad has Parkinson's and my mom has MS. Um, so their memory is kind of fading. And, and in some ways I'm like, I hear the same stories over and over. And if I hear a new story, I'm skeptical mm. as to like, okay, mom. So yeah. <laughs> that's kind of how my grandmother is where she, she was at same kind of age range, but uh, she's getting to the point where she's starting to repeat herself a lot. When there's quiet in the room, she has to tell a story kind of thing. Yeah, I understand that. I was going to tell, uh, I was going to tell uh, you guys that I too had a memorable journey in a migration in 1979 is when my family came here from Mexico. So your, your, your parents came here or did that traveling, but we were doing the same thing, but uh, we're coming from a, a little bit different situation, but it's still, yeah, it's, it's still, very different, very different. I, mean, I would say that my dad's, my dad's hike though was a, my dad's hike was, um, I think a, a question of personal identity or, but it never had to do with citizenship or national identity or cultural identity. It was kind of like, I feel like doing this it was more of like a personal hike, I would say. Maybe. That kind of, that kind of, uh, triggers my brain a little bit where I think like the seventies were a time when people sought out that escapism in a way, right? There was a getting back to, I feel like it was a getting back to nature movement, not the hippie movement of the seventies, but it was like a, uh, going out and camping and hiking and being closer to nature environmentalism well, in a way is that make sense for anybody else exactly that that's actually the that's the very topic that i chose to research in terms of the counterculture in the 70s um and it, and it was because in the, in the 70s for the first time since john muir and teddy roosevelt there were any laws put on the books revolving around um environmental protection because like I think it was in 1969, one of the rivers flowing into Lake Erie was so polluted it literally caught fire. Yeah, the, the EPA came about in the 70s. Yeah, and and it, the idea of conservation and and you know uh, environmental conservation, um, it it was building as a grassroots movement in the 60s because, you know, there were uh, post post war boom you saw a lot of people moving out into the suburbs and there was a lot of ecological dis destruction in terms of like, uh, you know, paradise getting paved for a parking lot type of situation. That's an awesome. Saying. Um, but in 1970 and 72 and 74 were some of the very first, uh, were, were the first three, you know, congressional acts that were put into place on a federal level in terms of, of preserving nature. That's when the EPA was, was established by, Reagan, I think, um, as well as things that, that I find super interesting about it too is is it was because Nixon, wasn't it? Maybe it was Nixon, but but the the most prominent environmental protection laws were signed under conservative Republican presidents. They were Nixon and Reagan and George H. W. Bush, and and it's really interesting, like you know, because I'm I'm an environmentalist, self proclaimed, and and today it's it's held as a particularly liberal ideology yet yet the most substantial acts were were put in place by conservative people and and at the time there you know the way it fits into this counterculture idea is that at the time there was still kind of the vestiges of the manifest destiny infinite progress you know expand wealth whatever else and it was counter to the american dream to say stop industrialization stop you know productions stop all of this this stuff to protect natural resources 
and so you did have, like Alex was saying, and like your dad experienced, Pat, there was in fact a huge move in, movement uh, in the 70s that kind of came up, up from the grassroots movement in the 60s of experiencing the environment and, and environmentalism in general. And, I, and it's one of those, I have to, I have to put it in there, because we, we think about conservatives and conservatism, its root is in the word conservation, to conserve, to protect what is old. Right, and that's fitting fits a lot into the ideas and ideologies of conservatism. Is a there's a way that exists now, let's maintain the existence of now, and that's usually why we see liberalism in countercultures because you know counterculture is a way of life or an attitude that's opposed to the mainstream or the dominant or whatever socially normative, which is why it's kind of interesting that you know you have conservatives standing and promoting what was what we would consider now very liberal ideologies and actions um but it, it's kind of the like it is conservatism like at its core it's the this thing is here it's it's what's always been let's keep it that way that is conservatism it you know to me on, on that kind of fundamental level but there's conservatism when it comes to finances versus the environment versus social so it's kind of hard to all put it into one box it and that that that's true it, it which is where it gets really interesting politically and socially and and uh uh um ideologically it, you get interesting lines that get crossed um but i just had uh, some interesting thoughts um on on this idea of environmentalism and, and wilderness and protecting and conserving it's and, my, and from my kind of nuanced understanding with um wilderness is that wilderness is largely a constructed concept and that there that this idea of wilderness is somehow these untouched landscapes are is kind of a fictitious idea that humans just like any other animal species modify their environments wherever they go i mean we're even modifying sure. antarctica right now um so when we talk about conserving like if you look at like i guess mount rainier is a very washington landscape if you will it's very famous for um, mount rainier um, the way that Mount Rainier is preserved is one that like a group of people sat down and said is this is and they said this is the way we want to preserve it. Um, I mean natives burned fires on Mount Rainier, prescribed burns there yearly. Um, so I, I think that when we have any kind of national park or environment that we want to set aside and say this is the way it is, the way it always has been, I think that you're kind of looking at this whole spectrum of time and you're picking, not you, Pat Mountain, but with, uh, us, society. No, you're, picking, you're absolutely one right. Time yeah. And we're saying, this is the time that was most authentic. This is the time. Um, so like, I, I, I have a lot, I don't want to cut you off. I want you to keep going, but I have a lot of thoughts about, you know, wilderness in general and, and what that might mean or not mean. Well, and that's where you, you get into the, the notion of like, um, yeah, when when you're really thinking about environmentalism, you really have to grasp onto the concept that everything is connected and everything shifts. I mean, that's how evolution works and functions in in general. And there is that kind of ties into the this mythological understanding of how like oh you know the Native American tribes were totally and completely in tune with that's the land. A, and a, that's the, a, no, that's a myth weren't. of the noble savage. It's a myth. 
yeah, the myth of the noble savage where it's, it's one of those things where like they had agriculture, they, they raised, you know, animals and, and you can find examples of that from, from East coast to West coast amongst all of the native populations. Um, and it is, I would say it's fair to say that there is kind of a, a connection and appreciation for the land and its broader functions and how their behavior changed it. I think that kind of ingrained in their societies, that was, that was the case and, and often still is. It, it's a different philosophy of the interaction between human and the environment. But um, to say that they weren't changing the landscape dramatically is inaccurate. Um, but, but here, here is where, you know, in the seventies is where we find that counterculture is the major clash between the environment and industrialization. And like one of the great examples is DDT, the, the, uh, uh, pesticide. Uh, one of the, one of the reasons DDT became so heavily fought against and outlawed is because research came out conclusively connecting, um, the decline of the population of the bald eagle to DDT. Um, they found that DDT actually caused the shells of the eggs of the eagles to get thin and chicks had a very, chicks weren't being born. And so like this, the American symbol, the bald eagle, the patriotic master of the skies were dying away. And it was like conclusively proven it was because of this industrialized agricultural product. And um, that was that was one of the ways that it was able to gain such bipartisan support in terms of of uh like legislation being passed mark about that time is when we first started seeing maybe the evidence of the excesses of capitalism like with pollution air pollution water pollution tacoma yeah was had terrible 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 mills so they always called it the aroma of tacoma and in the 70s it stunk really bad and they started cleaning it up and so now it's better so again you know, from either a history point of view or economics, the excess of capitalism really started coming to the forefront in the 70s. In terms of environment. Right. That, well, like socially, yeah. we've seen the excesses of that for quite some time. Yes. Well, and that's where, too, you get the like the the idea of environmental justice tied into social justice. That that term was coined in the 70s because they, they were they were seeing that the industrial centers where the pollution was most prominently created were happening in areas where the most impoverished citizens of of the country lived in in say like detroit or um you know those major cities and, and it kind of depended you know where the location was on what the ethnicity of the group was but whether they were uh latino african-american or white you were seeing the largest people suffering from those capitalistic the consequences uh, overflow of the capitalistic models and industrialization impacting the most disadvantaged communities across the country which is where that we get that idea of the counterculture and people's rights and social justice and environmental justice they all kind of have this intersection right in that area um where you know a lot of the environmental movement was getting championed most heavily by um women women's rights activists you know they were kind of one of the groups that took it up most avidly followed by um like industrialized unions <clears throat> so you get a lot of the poor white people joining in on that and then in the um the agricultural rights movement uh from uh oh geez his name just left me 
I remember the woman, Dolores Huerta. Um, Cesar Chavez. Chavez, yeah. So part of their part of their whole platform and their push too was because of the chemicals and the environmental impacts that were negatively affecting the health of agricultural workers. You could look at and, and so environmentalism was interesting because it it never was until the 70s exclusively its own movement it was kind of piggybacking as an element of a lot of other movements that were taking place and then in the 70s it started to become its own individual movement with its own um groups and political action committees and legislative actors and things like and that. And part of that is a huge population growth. So now we need more power, yeah. more energy. We need more space to build things. And therefore that this compounds the problem. Yeah. And I was going to say, when we talk about like that, like who's disadvantaged that's exposed to this. I mean, you look at Yakima County right now with the COVID-19 and the warehouses and the, the workers that are essential um, that have to work in these warehouses and, and with the food. And they're the ones that are, you know, spiking the cases in, in this county so highly. And that's largely, you know, Latino-based work. Not even to mention across the country with the big meatpacking plants, they tracked how pivotal that was to, I think, Iowa's massive outbreak where a, like, one meatpacking plant was being, was playing real hardball with this, told their workers, if you don't work, you're fired and we'll find somebody else. Those workers showed up. So there was like a couple people infected and we got something like a hundred, 200 plus cases that came out of that as those people got it dispersed, came back dispersed. I mean, it's a little bit off topic, but that shows how interconnected all of those industries are to so many different facets of life. And they, and out of that last thing before I move on, it's like, they also showed from that potentially where that infection could go, that meatpacking plant in Iowa, ships all the way across to like Washington state. Like they, they travel across country with uh, cooled uh, refrigerated vehicles down to Texas, out to California. The web of dispersal was insane. What if those people who were infected were handling that meat? Well, and, and a lot of times the perspective on the COVID changes if you consider it like an environmental disaster. Um, where where this is kind of one of those nature letting us know it's still here and it does what it wants because this was a you know a disease that jumped multiple species in china in these wet markets where man manipulating nature to its own designs and and bringing in these kind of elements of what may be considered environmentally irresponsible behavior um and then jumping to humans and moving around kind of like that and it's kind of like you can consider it a natural disaster in that regard. Jose, you were saying something. No, I'm, what I was saying is, you know, we started looking at uh, the different time periods that we uh, take up here. We went from the 1950s, then we looked a little bit at the 1960s and the different movements. Now we're looking also at what, what was starting to happen and morphed into various movements of the 1970s. And a group that promoted this, we know there's not one individual, it was just a movement, you know, called the counterculture. And if you think about the counterculture is, it, by definition is, it is a movement that goes against the established dominant culture of that community and happened to be in the U.S. Now, a lot of times we think of the counterculture as the hippies. The, there's a stereotype. There's hippies, uh, middle class, white Americans that go around uh, listening to rock and roll music, doing drugs. But if, if we begin to dissect it, it's much, much more 
complicated than that. There are some individuals who did go into become an environmentalist. There were some people who did do drugs, let's face it. There, uh, but there was others who did the same thing. It did, it, just because you were a hippie didn't mean you were automatically a, into drugs. But I think when we're looking at the 1960s, 1970s, we got to look at movements that help shape America. And the counterculture was a group of people who began to rebel against the established norm, what was accepted. And maybe Mark can uh, give us an idea of what it was like for him or growing up in the 1960s. Okay, we were talking about the counterculture of the 70s, but growing up in the 70s, most people were basically normal and they weren't part of the, the counterculture, but it was all around us. Because I do remember like backlight, black light posters you could buy at the in shop um you know our hair again i had hair you know down past my ears in high school and in in middle school uh and parents didn't like that because again they were used to the short hairs of the 50s and early 60s um i remember you know bell-bottom pants uh tie-dye shirts that's all kind of the stuff that was part of the 70s and it started out as counterculture but it became part of the mainstream because we all wore that i remember wearing earth shoes which had they were taller in the front than they were in the heel and it was kind of a back to nature thing Um, i know drugs was on the big increase a lot of marijuana smoking in high school um of course drinking beer too so i think you know drugs in high schools have been around since the 60s and it still is today Um, but for the most part there was kind of some backlash to the vietnam war you know, my dad was in Vietnam twice and Korea once, but in, in the mid to late 70s, the military was not looked very highly upon like it was in the 80s, 90s or now. Because had I been 10 years younger, I might have gone through ROTC like my father did. But in the late 70s, it was like, ooh, military. And it was, wasn't very highly esteemed like it's been since. And again, that was a reaction to the the Vietnam War, because it was, I think, officially over in about 74. So military was, was again, something that was not highly regarded. And the Vietnam War was not very popular either. And I do remember in the 70s, you started seeing the war on TV. And a lot of people thought, why are we over in Vietnam anyway? Because it really didn't affect us directly. And it probably didn't even need to indirectly. So that's kind of the hippie anti-Vietnam, anti-war type era, and all the offshoots with the clothing, the long hair, and, and things of that sort. Was there like a, was, was there this sense of like fear, discomfort about some other group of people? Like, like, do you remember encountering this like, oh, you got to be worried about hippies, or like, oh, do you have to be worried about this thing? Kind of like, like now today we're talking, you know, or for a while we're talking about, oh, these kids with their phones, everyone needs to worry about the, the phones, or or something like that. Like, was there one of those things where you, you remember hearing, like, you got to keep well, our kids away from like, this thing? You know, the loud rock and roll music, the long hair, the drugs, etc. But again, most people were, you know, not part of that fringe. So there are some. Um, you know, if, in fact, you know, Eisenhower High School, you know, came up in, in the late '50s. But when I was in, going to school in the '70s, Davis played all their home basketball games at Eisenhower High School because we didn't have a gym. It was torn down a lot earlier when they were going to build the old school, which me was a new school. 
Uh, I did see the castle, but I didn't go to the castle, but I went to the old school and now I see the new school. But again, for, there were a, about a 15 year period where we didn't have gymnasium. So we played all our home basketball games at Ike and wrestling though was at Davis because those aren't attended as well. So would you guys say that uh, the people in the, that involved were, we would say that in the counterculture was a fringe group, a minority group in terms of, a, in terms of numbers, uh, even though they were interesting, they may have been a fringe group and a minority group, but most of them came from the dominant group, which meaning the white culture, white middle-class uh, individuals. Would you say that's a fair assessment or maybe not? Other people, what do you guys think? It was a fringe group and there weren't very many, but even though they were small, it did have a big impact on what we saw on TV, the clothes we wore, the things that we did for entertainment. Again, it, even though most people weren't involved, it did, it did influence our behavior and our, and our social structures. Okay. Alex, you were going to say something? I was. I was going to go circle back to speaking of these groups within groups, especially like minorities within the majority. You're talking about the Vietnam protests, and I, I think back to that really famous photo of John Kerry, uh, who was testifying uh, about the abuses in Vietnam. I mean, even within our military structure, there were individuals that were protesting and against it and were trying to make a change there. The, I mean, in the military, we like to believe that everything is completely unified and completely on the same page. We see publicly for the first time, members of the military saying, this is wrong, we are doing something wrong, and we need to do something about it. And I think that in a way that, I mean, that the role of television can be talked about again here, the role of photography in the mass media right, can be talked about here. That minority now has a platform to get that message out. Patrick? No, I think that we were becoming more kind of class conscious too. I mean, like, if you think about the, the motivations behind the Vietnam War and compare that to the motivations behind World War II, I think that a lot of people ask the question in Vietnam, why are we here, a lot more than fighting in Normandy or fighting in the Pacific. Right. And a lot of people were killed in Vietnam by friendly fire, even a mistake by somebody on their own side or sometimes killing some of their own leaders because it was such an awful war. Oh, and, 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 and regardless of, of and I, 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 you're absolutely right, but I would say regardless of um, who killed the Americans, I think that a lot of Americans were asking, why am I here killing um, Viet Cong? Yeah. And I think, uh, right. I think they were asking that question more then why am I killing Nazis? And, and Pat, I think that's a good question that you, that you, or a good point that you bring up there because I think that is it, the essence of what the counterculture was looking at is what does all this mean? What does it mean uh, and what is my role in society here? Uh, and, they begin to question would... everything. And they say in the 1950s, I mean, the counterculture and the hippies don't come in, uh, in the 1950s, but the forerunners to them, the beats, uh, Beat generation, they are the beginners of that. Next. They are, Beatness, yeah, right? but they're into the, you know, most of them into poetry, music, and stuff. But mo most of them uh, are not really heavily political, it's more of personal you stuff. Now you start seeing these uh people, these hippies that are saying everything is political, everything is personal, but it's also political. The personal is political, 
And so you see that they begin to question uh, um, the role of capitalism and the environment. They begin to uh, question uh, the social issues as well, and not just well, that, uh, me. I wanted in, to tie onto that that classism thing, that you know class distinctions, because it, it was also during the draft of Vietnam. If if you were attending university, you could gain exemption from the draft, and so it was one of those where um, if you couldn't afford college, you couldn't dodge the draft. You had you had to run, and so it was one of those where like you see a lot of the pro the protests and the photos and stuff that were taken at like universities where the national guard you know shot and was like well those were the rich kids that could afford to not go to war, um and and that became one of those deals where people were like wait a minute what's this all about you know and and that became a just real quick on what Jose said like it, it kind of crystallized in my mind for a second that when we talk about counterculture in this era it's activism. And before this, counterculture was just that. It was like the kids that listened to different music, the, the beatniks who defined themselves by how they acted socially. But in so many ways, counterculture in the 1970s and beyond becomes a defined act. You associate with activism politically, environmentally more, which I think is really interesting, something I didn't think about to this time. Yeah. A mark. Yeah, well, the reason why... You know, in the late 60s and early 70s and mid 70s, a lot of kids went to college to avoid the draft. And that's why there was a, a big surplus of teachers in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And then finally it started coming down because people would go uh, to college, get away from the draft. Easy degree being a teacher. <laughs> Patrick. Uh, I would argue, though, that that. Um it might be a little reductionist to just kind of say that this the activism was a role just in the 70s and it wasn't before. I think that we always kind of have to keep in mind positionality. Like when we say, oh yeah, people were just kind of normal at this time, whether it's the 2000s, the 70s, or whatever time period, I, I think we have to take into account who are we socially, like how do we fit in this bigger wheel? So if I'm only surrounded by people who are like me, and we are quote unquote the dominant mainstream normal culture, all I see are other people that are quote unquote normal doesn't mean that people that aren't normal don't exist. And, and even to use that word normal is implying that my way of being is the right way and the dominant way. And, and these other people have to change to be like me. Right, there's my way or the wrong way. And that's kind of like the, 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 the I would challenge myself and the rest of us is to keep in mind is that I would say that activism was very much a part of the 50s. Uh, um, kind of like we talked about how things become cool I think that activism was becoming more mainstreamable by the 70s, where uh, yeah. by the dominant culture, where in the 50s, blacks were active, but the, the whites hadn't accepted the message yet. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like any time period. It's like women's rights is a big thing in the, in the 70s because of this, right? Like that's where people point to, but there's so many waves of feminism that happen across time. I mean, the women, women were it's so funny because we were talking about it in our meeting today right get women in the podcast <laughs> um women's rights transcends time and throughout many i mean prohibition was a feminist a uh suffragette ideal that started and that was far beyond far before women had the right to vote and stuff so it's like you can't say one time period was better or more activist centric than others yeah well, uh, one thing i wanted to transition to because i like what malahan said is it's a little jumping forward in time but when i thought about counterculture i wrote a paper in college about 
grunge music, especially in Seattle and Western Washington in the 90s. Is that music? How? Yes, it is. It is. And it's better than your disco Again, raised by a very discotheque dance. It's called soul music. That's what I like. And and Fun. grunge is getting to the gutter where that is the closet. I would like to go a disco dancing. <laughs> but anyway, so grunge music emerged in Seattle because geographically it was cut off from the rest of the nation. Major bands, major major people like disco pop like rock music of the 80s didn't go to seattle they didn't go to the pacific northwest because there wasn't money there they didn't see fans there it was so geographically secluded they were like loggers and fishers and everything well a little extra history to that alex is the the uh like like the hair rock metal metal scene that kind of blew up in california the the grunge movement actually started there in California as a counterculture response to the hair metal. And, and it found, it found a home like a, a thriving yeah. home in the Pacific Northwest, you know, in the late eighties and nineties, but like Eddie, Eddie Vedder joined um, Pearl Jam yeah, yeah. from California. Like he came from California having done grunge music down there first. I mean, yeah. that's, that's where it started originally, but it was, it was part of that counterculture. It, it was in the mainstream of rock in the seventies from, from California had its counterculture response in grunge there. And then it, it relocated and found a, yeah. a serious so my, home my in the paper, 80s. When I was there. talking about that, I um, talked about that, that seclusion in the, Washington State Sound area, Olympia, Seattle, all the way up into there, and how, like Patrick was saying, um, that was the mainstream there. That was in there. All the clubs there played that grunge music, that very alternative rock music. Um, other types of music in general were not as popular, but it was such a thriving um, subgenre that people really dug into it there. And they were like, this is our sound, our place. And when finally some of that began to leak out into the rest of the nation, then you get the nationwide 90s grunge movement. For the, but for the time, they were like, this is us, this defines us, and we are the dominant culture for the first time in their young lives in the Pacific Northwest, when they only knew their, their parents who were loggers or fishermen, and they only had the, the media coming into Seattle, never being exported from Seattle. And so I, I, I wanted to bring that up because that's one of my favorite examples of counterculture when you think about all those factors, social, geographic, um, rebelling, against, especially socially rebelling yeah. against music, and then grunge music's like take as a political movement even later on can be seen as counterculture well i'd like to i'd like to tie that to its its uh you know when counterculture is kind of like a concept yeah. that always exists everywhere right it will it will always be around and so we're just we're just sort of seeing this um it's it's almost like where the counterculture of political activism turns from counterculture to mainstream where we have you know the the civil rights activity in the sixties, that was kind of a counterculture type of thing at the time. And then now, and you know, we start moving into the seventies where we have more like, uh, like Alex wants to talk about the gay pride marches and we have um, the, the farm workers movements and we have all those things where like 
the counterculture. I mean, Martin Luther King is a national holiday now, and he was a total counterculture rebel fighting against the Yeah, but the, the idea the of like counterculture using activism as a tool became not a counterculture thing anymore, right? It transitioned into the mainstream. Um, but, you know, we're talking about grunge. The, the early and mid 70s is where hip hop got started in, in the Bronx with, with uh, DJ Cool Herc and um, Grandmaster uh, Flash. Grandmaster uh, Slash, right? And the, what was it, the, the Fabulous Five? And we have, so that hip hop was born out of this disenfranchised group in a geographically isolated area because they had built a, a highway bypass through the Bronx and it economically devastated the area. So we have this whole group of people that formed their own counterculture movement that then in the 80s blew up and spread across the nation and became a mainstream thing later. But it started it started there in the 70s. Okay, so I'm, I, I, you inspired me. Um, I think when we say that activism becomes mainstream, I think that's a survival strategy for the system of capitalism. Because a lot of those things that people that were becoming active against were the foundational structures of capitalism. And so capitalism kind of has to safely market that to invest it in. Because it's better to have, think about it. Nowadays, we have Che Guevara sold on patches all the time. We sell, um, like I, I play magic cards and, and the backs of the sleeves, you put the cards in, people ironically sell like the North Korean flag on the back of that. I mean, think about what people were asking for in the 60s and 70s. Martin Luther King, who even conservatives say is pretty palatable now, was against the Vietnam War and he was a communist. And we, I think that the capitalist hegemonic structure, when I say the hegemony, I mean like the, the structure that keep the divide in classes, Majority. The, the kind of bourgeoisie kind of class couldn't allow pure activism to become mainstream because that's dangerous to the capitalist system. A lot of those people wanted to strip the capitalist system of what it was doing. So I think you need to find, I think capitalism needed to find a way to incorporate activism so that it still felt the need that people were being active, but in a way that didn't target capitalism itself and it could still continue to function. So I think that it was a lot safer to practice capitalism uh, or activism in the 70s, 80s. And, and, and I mean, hell, today I would say activism is super common with like hashtags of Black Lives Matter and things like that. I mean, then you get um, a lot of compromise, right? You get a lot of government like, okay, we'll give you some, but not all of what you're asking, especially when people are saying. Yeah, and, and Johnson did that. Johnson did that in the 60s. He was very, Johnson was very skilled at the deal. But I would say, think about the mediums technologically. What do we use to, for Black Lives Matter? We use Twitter, which is a very capitalist, you know, I forget, is it Mark Zuckerberg that owns Twitter? Um, you know, so we're using the master's tools now. I think that's what the, that's the best phrase. I mean, the master's tools goes back to old like um, kind of sociology in, in terms of slavery and understanding that like to truly dismantle slavery, you, you can't use the master's tools. You can't use those systems. You have to find a new system. And I think what we're doing right now from you want to call it the 60s or whatever period is we're using we're still using activism. but We're kind of using the tools of capitalism to you do that activism. So we're using the masters tools. Working within the system instead of against the system. A couple of things. Uh, it's not Mark Zuckerberg doesn't own Twitter. He it's owns Facebook and uh, Instagram. I don't think he owns Twitter, but that's a different, that's a minor thing. Uh, but what, what I, what, the point I think we want to always keep in mind is that in a capitalist system like ours, for good or for bad, non-judgmental, is that once the capitalists see something that may emerge from a fringe culture, whether it be 
rock and roll music, whether it be jazz, whether you name the era, whether even hip hop, uh, uh, that uh, the same thing with disco. Once they see that a profit can be made, the capitalists will go in there and do what the capitalists do, which is capitalize, creating jobs. There's some, some good stuff, some naked, totally horrible things come out of good and bad. I mean, it was not a judgmental thing here. Uh, and eventually, that fringe group becomes, interestingly enough, a dominant group when it gets co-opted by the capitalists. And then the, this is where uh, people would, you know, you were talking about, Alex, about uh, grunge music. Well, if you go, go back and look at traditional rock and roll, uh, it's you, very popular in the 1950s and 60s. And the grunge movement said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to fit into this uh, stereotype of a, what rock and roll is. We're going to, in essence, create a new, a new uh, type of music. And this is where grunge comes out of it. Uh, where they and then the irony of that is that it went nationwide, mm -hmm. got completely commercialized, right. lost the you know the spirit of it. Everyone was wearing the like flannel, and everybody had like the the loggers hats and the ratty clothes. It became a nationwide phenomenon right. that was then brought into mainstream it, it and, and was capitalized on. And it, then people and rebelled against that culture and created new music like again and there's a hearkening back to the good old days well, of, the, of rock and roll and then you have hip-hop challenging <clears throat> that stereotype and then you have electronic dance music emerging to even counter those things it's a constant ebb and flow of music well one of the things i find interesting about that is uh as, as those things became mainstream the activist elements of them in many ways passed into the mainstream with them. And so I think about Grandmaster's Flash, you know, main hit song was talking about how trashy and terrible the circumstances were in the Bronx, like broken bottles everywhere, right? Um, and that became kind of a, a rallying cry in in certain areas to support the, to, to provide support for the region and try and bring those people up. And when you think about like the grunge <clears throat> movement that came out of Seattle, you have songs like Jeremy from Pearl Jam and a lot of a lot of Nirvana and and they they brought out with them this awareness of especially like with Nirvana you had a lot of these dying logging towns and depression and suicides and and the the idea of the kids that grow up in an empty house or with uh, the parents that the are people that are like unattended to the alcoholic parent or just being just this feeling of loneliness and being ignored yeah as a child and that was brought out so much in nirvana's music absolutely and that's and that's one of the interesting things where when when you have a a a democratic society the the rights of the minorities are in the hands of the majority um like they're they have to be that that's just where that's just how the system works and and capitalism say, is kind of a i would say the majority fits in not necessarily it. it could be just pure numbers but the majority could be like the majority of of social and political capital so you could like look at south africa there are way less whites in yes. south africa i would say than an apartheid society. Yeah. i think one of the ways to look at it is not necessarily majority numbers it's more the dominant culture whatever the dominant culture would be you, you give a good example of south africa uh it's, it's the same thing in other parts of the world it's, it's a it, the counterculture is it, yeah. it, it is a culture of rebelling against a dominant culture meaning dominant in terms of power 
because the people who are in power will really dictate what is accepted, what's socially accepted, what's not socially accepted, from the way people dress to the music they uh, they listen to. But then there's people who feel oppressed. They're going to bounce back. Yeah, and, and you can look at Yakima. Look at Yakima right now. I would say Yakima right now. If you look at like the New York Times article that was written, and even even without the article, you just walk around Yakima. And oh yeah, are aware. Yeah, and I, there is an imbalance in power, and I think there actually is. There are, I think, more Latinos now in Yakima than whites, but the, the kind of the the whites have more of that political social capital, and I think that there is. They're a the capital. ones that engage as well. They're the ones that whites are the ones that feel like they can engage, not be judged, and their vote has power. Many many Latino people, they just basing off of our students and nationwide, people of color feel like their vote does not matter, and they are disenfranchised with the political system, and that feeling is something that I think the dominant culture white America in a way does not feel. They feel like the vote matters. They feel like they have a voice because they belong to a political party, but there are so many people that feel like they cannot and will not make an impact. My wife is like that. She's Canadian, but she's also just so checked out. She looks at the American system and is like, I'm one person, I can't make an impact there. What do they want my voice for? Yeah, and uh, I think one of the things we have to also uh, keep in mind in that when we say the dominant culture, that does not necessarily, we're not saying that uh, if you are part of the dominant culture, re regardless of the country, regardless of the country, that there are not going to be people within that group that are really, really going to be caring about minority rights, about the oppressed groups. Because uh, during the civil rights movement, there's a lot of uh, whites who were also partook in the civil rights movement. Bernie Sanders. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so what happens, I think it's, it's not uh, black versus white. It's not a brown versus uh, other colors, you name it. In many ways, it is a, it's this class issue. It's the people who have the economic power, the political power, but even within that, there are some individuals who will start partake, partaking in a movement. And the thing that's interestingly enough is that once that group and members of that group really, really start partaking in the activism, attention is brought more and more to that. So if you really, really want to take. Well, that, that's kind of what I was getting at with the, the music thing, right? Where, where you have these minority countercultures reaching mainstream awareness where uh, the majority, whether you consider it through sheer numbers of people and voting or the majority of those that have political and economic capital, where, where like think, think about how hip hop became more mainstream and more consumed and digested across the nation. Like, would you, would you guess that without the gritty anger, you know, socially and politically charged lyrics of hip hop in the the seventies and the early eighties, that we would have that, like it rode on the coattails and elevated in a different way to different places in the country the plight of African Americans. Same with like the you know, you know, one of those byproducts of capitalism and the environmental movement was like Kurt Cobain came from a dead, depressed town that was a logging town. It used to be vibrant and rich. And then the environmental movement and, and the EPA shut down logging in the area. The town died, fell into heroin addiction, all kinds of problems. And now we have this, this group of people that would not have been attended to as carefully before elevated and attended to. And so it's like the majority you know, quote, the majority has this access to a minority population's issues. And 
and it's it's kind of where the art of counterculture as it rises into mainstream brings the plight of minorities and disenfranchised into the greater consciousness and allows for the you know the majority to tend to the rights of the minorities uh patrick if you want to go off of that i would Patrick, go off of that. You, you, you got, I wanted to change subjects. So I wanted to move okay, on so or move into my kind of discussion. It's kind of a double-edged sword I, as it becomes mainstream, because I mean, yeah. if you look at like, as things become mainstream, they, in some ways, no matter what end of the spectrum it's coming for, it can lose the, the sting, so to speak. Like if you look at like, you know, we're selling Che Guevara communist badges, or the thing that I really would say is, I mean, you go to West Valley, a very conservative area and their high school kids are are bumping hip-hop and some of them will listen to old school biggie smalls or you know nwa and they'll, they'll like you'll, they'll bump that stuff they'll even bump music from like nas and, and tupac and stuff like that and they themselves are super conservative but they'll consume like like they'll, they'll consume appropriate the music um but not the message not that appropriation is always bad and or not and and like the idea like I would say cultural exchange is good. Appropriation is bad. That's, yeah, um, absolutely. Cultural exchange, I still keep the, the, the meaning. The meaning is still there. And I, I think that um, the, the meaning is, is somewhat lost when we just consume the clothes or the music or the food. Like for instance, yeah, oh, we love tacos. Let's go to the taco truck, but build the wall or what have you. So I think that, um, you know, there's, there's a there's a friction there sometimes yeah I, I, but the question is why why is it i mean why is it that the dominant culture or who or is it a moment is it a person it's just something that causes the dominant culture to absorb that whatever french movement it is at one time and i use french movement and you know it's on the on the, on the sides whether it's rock and roll it was marginalized marginalized groups yeah and then they get co-opted and uh eventually uh, capitalize on it and then, and I think it's twofold. I think it's twofold because it, in, in capitalism wants to continue to make capital, capitalism. So I think you can, you can make money off of it, sure. And then I, I also think it's like a protecting thing. I mean, like kind of like what I was saying earlier, like you, um, we don't want to let any of these movements that are so anti-capitalist get so much momentum that our system deteriorates now would you say though that those when those minority movements those fringe movements are incorporated into the majority or the hegemony like patrick's been saying this whole time that's not necessarily a bad thing some people might call that selling out or joining the man or compromising giving up something that was real to you but if and i was just kind of thinking this on the fly if you think of those movements anti-war in the 70s anti-vietnam movements in the 70s radically changed how americans viewed war even women's rights did this as well and hip-hop did the same all of those movements are incorporated into america america now cannot get away from our relationship with anti-war movements i mean since the 70s even the 60s anti-war movements have been ingrained in the culture and everybody from that point onward knew protesting war is an american tradition now i would argue so if you want to think of it like physiologically right maybe you would get maybe that vietnam movement is a cut or a bruise or something it, it hurts it hurts the nation and people are saying oh my god that's a wound it, it's a it defiles the nation but over time that heals over time that becomes part of you that becomes the tapestry of scars 
that make up what really is the nation, right? That is the soul. You see our history written like that. And so counter, the, the, I think the overall theme we're dancing around here is that countercultures rise, get absorbed, new countercultures rise, and then are absorbed again. And that's always, I would say most of the time always, a net positive. I hope that the new neo-Nazi movement does not do that, but still, I mean, like you see those, those positive things incorporate making the nation stronger and that hegemony, I think, stronger. Does that make sense? Well, or am I just rambling? Yeah, I, I think what, you, <laughs> what you're talking about is that movements are in constant evolution, whether it's music that's Evolution's constantly uh, evolving. And uh, like I said, for good or for bad, uh, not a judgmental, sometimes it, it's just a net. That's what it's going to lead to. It's going to change. Eventually, a movement will die off. And in, in America, and people talk about revolution, revolution, or Bernie Sanders revolution, whatever it may be. What you really have is individual says, we are tired of the way things have been. And so we're going to introduce something new. But can you really, really, really do that in America where you keep the same economic structure and you keep the ex pretty much the same uh, governmental structure, but expect new outcomes? I'm not sure that it can be pulled off. I'm well, really, we've seen I'm that sure. change politically. If we want to talk about like political counterculture, I mean, uh, the thing that I've jumped to immediately is the role of the president, where a president's power has expanded massively since its inception with the signing of the Constitution. I mean, our our presidents are even in even in Vietnam. Hey, hey, Matt. Even in Vietnam, we see. The, or sorry, Korea, the term police action as a go around for going to war, literally going to war. There's no arguing about that, right? So we see our politics changing continuously. And again, we might not agree with that, but that, that oh, this could never be part of us, scarring effect and that absorption and that creation. I mean, we take the president's power for granted so often these days, even the the minor adjustments in politics in the uh, the Congress, the Senate, and the judicial branch, they have they are continually gaining or subtract gaining or losing powers throughout the last two hundred years that we have been a nation. Right, Alex, and I guess I see the culture is is a group of people asking America, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? Uh, is this what you really really want? And and some people are completely okay with it. A lot of people who were uh, participants in the counterculture said, no, we don't like the way our country's going. And some people retreated inward. Other people became more politically active in various groups. That's how I see the counterculture and the legacy uh, it's going to leave. Uh, but maybe uh, Matt or Mark, you guys can chime in on what you guys see as the importance of the counterculture movement or something that maybe sticks out. And Matt, you want to chime in? Sure. So... I have to be really honest, when I was growing up in the 70s, I would not have known what counterculture is or have been involved in it in any way because my family, my parents, that would have been the farthest thing from our life that you could ever get to. Um, so when I was thinking about the 70s, I was just thinking about, okay, things that, things that changed in the 70s. 
you know, I don't know if it's that fits under counterculture or not, but one of the things that I and white was shoes. important to me as a, as a kid and still as an adult is sports. And sports in the 1970s went through lots and lots of changes. Um, so thinking in terms of, you know, a kind of a counterculture thing, Major League Baseball teams started wearing wacky looking uniforms. Uh, you know, the, the road blues, all these teams had solid blue road uniforms, um, which, you know, some of them look pretty good. Like the Mariners had all blue road uniforms. The Chicago White Sox, I don't know if you have, any of you are White Sox fans, but the White Sox wore some of the most ridiculous looking, they looked like pajamas as their uniform. And so, uh, you know, strange things. And then you have... Now, some of you guys look like you belong in the 70s with your hairstyles a little bit, especially probably Alex. Um, <laughs> and, and beards. Beards yes. were so not mainstream before the 70s. So in 1972, the World Series was between the Oakland A's and the Cincinnati Reds. And I was only in third grade when the World Series was taking place in fall of 1972. But that's the first one that I ever remember watching a little bit on TV. and the Oakland A's were the counterculture team. Their owner, Charlie Finley, he was absolutely not into tradition and all this stuff. And his players, the, the uh, Joe Rudy and Reggie Jackson and Raleigh Fingers, they all had mustaches and some of them had long hair. And, <laughs> and I hated them. I hated them, you know, as teams go. In fact, Raleigh Fingers, I had a Raleigh Fingers baseball card that I took a little push pin and put a hole through his nose. That's how much I disliked the Oakland A's. Fortunately, it's not. I bet you regret it now because you could have sold it for a lot of money. Yeah, not too much. <laughs> I mean, it's that same way when you talk about sports and you talk about mustaches. I mean, I remember my brother was a big runner and he did this whole project on Steve Prefontaine, yep. the runner, right? And his, his growing a mustache. And did he, now, did he do long hair as well? Yes, yes. In fact, did, uh, Jose, you probably know yes. more about this, but he was kind of this standout guy. Why was that? Why was that? Okay, well, one of the things was, it wasn't in just uh, professional sports, throughout uh, college sports. Uh, colleges were very controlled in some areas. In some areas, they were much more liberal. The athletes were also uh, controlled very much. For example, you look at the University of Oregon, University of Oregon, it's a very liberal school. And uh, they had one of the more elite programs in 1970s run by um, a guy named Bill Bowerman. And one of their and, uh, top runners, obviously, uh, in the 70s was Steve Prefontaine, the preeminent, one of the preeminent runners in the world at that time. And uh, Bowerman told people, you know what, everybody is going to, Bowerman was a military guy. So he comes with this military background. And so he's telling all his runners, you have to wear short hair. We don't want to bring undue attention to our team. Uh, well, Steve Prefontaine bucked, bucked the system. He was more uh, into the mentality of, I am not going to be this individual that is controlled by a particular system. Luckily for him, he was a phenomenal runner, so he could call a lot of the shots. And he refused to go with this short hair that a lot of people 
wanted the runners to be. You look at the Yankees, going back to the professional, they were more clean cut. The A's, you talk about the A's, Matt, and think about where they come from. They come from Oakland. Oakland is the center of activism in the 1970s. Yep. Uh, that's where you see the Black Panther movement. So it's gonna, it makes sense that they are going to be more, I said, you could say tolerant or maybe more accepting of the, some, um, of a more uh, counterculture-ish kind of mentality uh, than maybe a dominant uh, rural uh, team, small uh, market like the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, would have been yeah the reds the reds were the opposite they were um they were very very clean cut you know johnny banks pete rose those guys they were as all american clean cut as you could ever get i i, I do have one really good example uh similar to steve prefontaine except he went to a better college and um that's a guy by the name of bill walton now if you know basketball you know that bill walton's one of the greatest basketball players of all time at the college level, easily one of the top five basketball players to ever play college basketball. Um, had a lot of injuries in the NBA, and still in the Hall of Fame. Uh, his coach was John Wooden, and anybody who knows me knows that John Wooden is a personal idol of mine. I have his pyramid of success on the wall of my classroom. So John Wooden was the coach, Bill Walton was a player, and Bill Walton was a very 60s uh, counterculture person. And to this day, uh, he's an announcer for basketball games on ESPN and Pac-12 Network, and he wears his tie-dye shirt. He's, he is as counterculture as you could ever get. And Bill Walton came to practice one day at UCLA uh, with long red hair, which was his trademark, and facial hair, which was a no-no. And John Wooden told him, well, you need to go home and clean up. And Bill Walton said, well, you know, coach. Uh, and he went on and explained his whole reasoning why he should be allowed to wear it the wet that way. All about, you know, the times and freedom and all this other stuff. And John Wooden looked at him and said, you know, Bill, that's a really uh, um, intelligent response. I really uh, respect you and uh, we're gonna miss you. <laughs> And so Bill Walton went home and shaved it off and came back because, you know, there were some, some forces that were just a little bit greater than uh, the need to be counterculture. And one was uh, if John Wooden says you need to get a haircut, well, you need to get a haircut. So it's funny how we like to idolize both sides, though. Yeah, yeah Mark, you idolize both sides, but there's a lot of people that compromise like that. And a lot of yeah. those people don't get that recognition. Go ahead. I just, re I just remember in the 70s, most coaches made us get haircuts because you know our hair was long and if we wanted to play baseball we had to get a haircut and just the way it was another thing about the 70s is that's when people started living together outside of wedlock you know before they were married living together that will oh no that's awful now it's commonplace so again counterculture does seem to change things that become maybe in another generation mainstream well so i, I have to go and you guys should keep talking once i go but uh I was going to offer just my final thought and the, this idea of how counterculture transitions into mainstream. It almost seems as though the, the notion and the fundamental of a principle of counterculture is instrumental in the evolution of a society. 
and and just in America alone, it's kind of one of those we talk about, you know, the disenfranchised um, and the trodden upon, and and it's hard to make the argument that for the majority of minorities and disenfranchised today, it's worse than it was 50 or 100 years ago, and and progress. And, and it's not to say that it's not bad. It's not to say that it can't be better and shouldn't be better, but the counterculture movements and their co-optation into mainstream uh, seems, and this is me just kind of thinking out loud here, seems to play a role in the evolution of uh, equality and the integration of multiple cultures and groups of people into a, a broader society, especially one like America, where there are so many elements of culture put together and there's that whole melting pot metaphor which is not totally accurate I, I don't think but it that general idea of how you know you have the difference between cultural exchange and and cultural appropriation in one way or the other exchange of some sort happens and as countercultures uh, take rise and turn into mainstream what you see is the mainstream of that society becoming different becoming something new like uh you know our culture today is so much different than it would have been if hip-hop had not grown into a mainstream thing and come out of the counterculture and same with grunge and same with the environmental movements and and think thinking of athletics and if those countercultures of of who got to do what and look like what in athletics did not I mean, I mean, think about uh, like Kaepernick, you know, today as it, his counterculture action of kneeling to the national anthem grew into an element of mainstream and love it or hate it, it has, just like all the others, has played a role in changing our society in, in some broader perspective. Um, and, and it's, again, one of those where like, People like the change and people don't like the change. That's kind of the nature of change. That's how it works. But um, countercultures as, as a general idea seem to be instrumental in a large collective like the United States um, in, in adjustment and growth and evolution. And that's, that's my final thought. Carry on. Um, I'll catch you guys later. I think we should move to final thoughts. I think we should move to kind of last statements. We'll see you, Pat. Love you. Don't get eaten by bear. Hate to see you leave. <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> My final thought on that is in terms of whether it be the counterculture here, whether the civil rights movement, whether whatever it may be, the, uh, anything new often uh, and on the fringe is not necessarily welcome. They're, and they have, they evolve. There's, and the more threatening that that individual seems to the established or the status quo, the more resistance there is going to be. And sadly to say, there is going to be a lot of things, negative things that are going to happen as a result of it. There's going to be a lot of pushback against individuals who are challenging the power structure because uh, they're telling people, you know what, the way we've been doing things may there may be a dip, an alternative, maybe a better thing from their perspective. And so sometimes some of those people get arrested. Sometimes uh, there's people turn to hate and violence. So we, we see that every now and then. So yes, my final thought is it's a change. 
but it does have some uh, potential uh, consequences. And don't be scared of consequences. Yeah, well, that's that's the way it is, whatever it may be. Anyway. Okay, I grew up in the 70s. I liked the 70s. I was part of the mainstream culture, but I accepted a little bit of the stuff that was counterculture. Um, but again, everybody adapts through time to whatever culture there is, and it's always changed. That's what history is. It's the study of change. And I liked the 70s. I liked the music of the 70s. And yes, I'd like to dance to that kind of stuff. Um, but again, it is what it is, or it was what it was. All right. Um, by the way, my Zoom background has a good old 1970s haircut. That, uh, that picture was actually 1982 when I graduated from high school, but it was the same for probably at least the five, six years pre prior to that if not farther back. And um, I'm going to very quickly, one of the things that was a definite change of the status quo in the 70s was playing sports in dome stadiums. And for those that hadn't figured it out, that is the kingdom that I'm sitting in, in this Zoom picture. And the kingdom is not there anymore, but I pretty much uh, spent the last few years of the 70s going to the kingdom as often as I could. I went there to watch the Mariners play starting in 1977. Um, I went there to watch the Sonics. In 1979, the Sonics won the NBA title. Um, they played lots of games in the Kingdom. And I used to be able to go to a Sonics game for $3 and sit in the upper deck at the Kingdom. And sometimes even like right at mid-court, but you're, you're really high. And, and the upper deck of the kingdom would have been, I don't know if you can see my cursor, but it's over there. I don't know if you can see that or not. But the, um, the upper deck at the kingdom was pretty high. It's a long way to, way to watch a basketball game, but for $3, it worked out great. And on uh, June 1st, 1979, the Sonics uh, won game five against the Washington Bullets to win the NBA title. It was in Washington, but uh, we were ready to, my friends and I, to go down to the kingdom and spend the night on the sidewalk to get tickets the next day for game six, um, which would have been a couple days later um, if, at, if the Sonics had lost that game. But they ended up winning, so we didn't have to do that. But um, the Kingdom was not too far from my house. It was about a 15-minute, 20-minute uh, car drive. And I spent a lot of time there. And it's no longer there, the Kingdom. It, was, it came down, and I think it was... 1999 is when it stopped being used for a stadium and then uh, they tore it down a couple of years later. So that was pretty interesting, but I spent a lot of time in the Kingdom and the other dome stadiums like the Metrodome in Minneapolis and the, um, of course the Astrodome had been before that, the Superdome in New Orleans came in in the 1970s and a few others, some of which are not even there anymore. Um, but lots of dome stadiums, sports changed a lot. Um, but I'll, I'll just stop it right there because I think the, uh, the kingdom was a microcosm for the seventies, bring everything inside, put a lot of cement around it and put it on TV. That was, that was 1970s for you. All right. Interesting. Thank you. It, it's, it's funny, uh, thinking about my final thoughts and whatnot. It's like this, this is turning into the music podcast instead of the, the history through the date, these decades podcast. But I think I have to echo in a big way what, uh, Jose and uh, Pat had said where um, you see counterculture rising and falling throughout history 
in the United States, it's very poignant. It's very in your face a lot. We pride ourselves on both our rebels and on our heroes. And a lot of the heroes were once rebels. But it's important to keep in mind that countercultures have sprung up all over the darn place. Uh, the United Kingdom is a great example where they have an extremely rich history. They have a lot of countercultures that have come and gone. And they are very, I, w I, th I think anyway, from the outside looking into that culture, homogenous. They are very united in their way that they handle things. Um, when you look at America, I think there are more things that tie us together than separate us. And to those people that are just addressing students, if you believe you are part of a counterculture, have faith that one day you will be absorbed and you will make this nation a better place by becoming part of this society and this culture. We are seeing a lot of strife right now with Latinos in this, in this country, from those who are immigrating here to those who have been here for a long time, to those who are pushing that culture. And those people will be <laughs> not, I don't want to say that they're not accepted, but they will be accepted as African-Americans have been. They will be brought into the American mainstream like many other cultures before have been. Like the Irish, like my ancestors were a hundred years ago when they were vilified for being Catholics coming to America. We will all become hegemonic one day. We have to have faith that your counterculture will enhance that, not tear it down. So keep to that. Uh, we'll see you, Mark. Pat's going to finish this out. Okay. Um, and Alex, feel free to, I, I invite you to, to chime in on this. I was going to go, my, my final thought on the overall discussion is that um, as things become more mainstream, we were talking earlier about like why they become mainstream and how they kind of become veiled in the capitalist system. And I was saying like the, the language often reflects, uh, like, like language changes in a more uh, veiled way, I think, once um, movements become mainstream so that they're more, so that they're more palatable um, to the mainstream. So James C. Scott, I, I changed my name on the screen. James C. Scott, anthropologist, did a lot of work in Southeast Asia looking at peasant societies there. Um, but he looked at how state level societies all around the world, not just the United States, but England, Australia, um, Canada, state level societies often change names to make things sound better, even if they're bad things. So like they'll often describe things like pass, we're gonna pacify another country or we're gonna pacify a population, which is really code for saying, we're gonna use armed insurrection to suppress their movement or we're gonna calm a patient in a mental hospital, which means by confining them and putting them in a straitjacket, or capital punishment for a state public execution, um, re-education camps for prison or for, for political opponents, or uh, an, an example very, very far back in history, um, we're gonna trade in ebony wood instead of saying um, human slave trade. Um, so you kind of choose language that becomes that makes things more palatable so people also don't realize that maybe the things they were fighting for they never achieved. Um, but then I was in, uh, kind of good to give a counter perspective to, to Alex and I invite Alex to, I don't want to just have the last word and jump off the cliff here, but I would argue that um, if, uh, there was a, it's the 60s, but Martin Luther King wrote a letter in the Birmingham jail um, where he was saying that all this time we've been asked to wait patiently for our turn and why should we wait? 
um, was kind of the gist of his letter in the Birmingham jail. And so, and when we say like, you know, have faith that one day we'll be part of the mainstream and then that may or may not be good. And to ask the question, is it good to homogenize? Sounds like more of Malcolm X than King then. Separation is the key, but separation on our terms, not the white man's terms. Well, and I think we, we, we also, we've also, like we, I kind of hinted at last week, we've also really redu reduced King's message to what is most palatable. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, uh, a lot, we, like, we like to leave out that J. Edgar Hoover was following King and taping him for being a communist. <laughs> um, but we will, but we'll, we love to focus on the I Have a Dream speech, which was only a section of that speech and not even the whole speech. Um, so I guess, and when we say wait, I mean, I would argue that we haven't even fully homogenized many minorities in our country today. I mean, you look at the video of um, the man that, that, that died last, last week in Minnesota. Um, so, you know, uh, I, and then I guess to, to, to fully bring things back, like we were talking earlier about positionality, like I have the positionality to say that, you know, things are okay, I guess, you know, being, you know, the middle class white guy that I am. Um, so I, I have more opportunity yeah. to, to, and, to say wait. So, yeah, I think my message wasn't, I, I tried, yeah, and I wasn't I saying to say that we should totally, you should lay down and wait for change to happen. No, I, <laughs> I guess I didn't come across quite clear enough. I think you absolutely fight tooth and nail for change, but have faith that what you are fighting for will eventually become part of the homogenous system, the mainstream, the accepted culture and i i think that i think i mean you have to fight real hard for that people throughout our history have fought so hard for that through prejudice and everything and but have faith that eventually like many movements before you have that you will break through and in a couple of generations when the people who resisted have gone or are no longer the main voice of a community you will be that voice and people will re remember that you fought and that you are now a part of the mainstream. It could be getting it a little bit wrong there, but that's more or less what I was saying. I'm trying to anyway. And again, it's, it's easy to say that from your comfortable suburban white mainstream perspective here, especially when we preach to students that are very not a, very not a part of that. To tell them to have patience is ironic, but I think, what I push in my classroom and what I hope that a lot of people do is that our students of color should not be afraid to stand up, should not be afraid to speak their mind, should not be afraid to disagree with teachers, politicians, leaders, to make their voice heard. That's the essence of a counterculture and it's beautiful. It's heroic and it's as American as it comes. I had this argument, I think with either Matt or Mark a while ago, where it's like people that disagree with presidents are not American. Well, I think that people that disagree with the mainstream and stand up for their rights are more American than anyone else. Certainly more than me. And I was fucking born here. All right. I mean, with that being said, remember that it's all about any type of these movements. It's not so much that, hey, I want people to accept me. Yes, you want people to accept you, but I want people to, I want to change the way things are. I don't want to just be fit in be thrown into the 
uh, melting pot. I don't want my culture to melt. I don't want my views to melt. You know what? It's maybe they're thinking more like a salad. You know, maybe it's more of a salad approach. I want to be part of something uh, here, but I also want to keep my identity as opposed to just, you know, blend in and forget about everything else. And when people try to do that, it's, it's asking the country to change. And of course, those people have to realize that there it's gonna, people are gonna face resistance to it. That's just the way it is. And they have to be okay with it. And change is not easy, uh, especially the more radical change it's going to be. That doesn't mean that you're gonna try to overthrow the system. You just wanna be part of, you wanna be part of the salad. You don't want something to be chopped up into pieces and you know, all of a sudden you didn't even know anything about your culture or what have you. And it's not that you don't love America. It's not that you don't uh, want to, you know, the concept of love it or leave it. I said, no, no, that's the opposite of what you want. You want to uh, love it and fix it and improve it as a, and not just run away from it. It's easy to cowardice and, and leave it. Uh, but these people, uh, many of them who are in the French, they want to make it better. Maybe they see a better America than what we have now. Uh, because for some reason, some things have not worked for them. And to simply tell people, oh, you know what, love it or leave it. I don't buy into that system myself. I say, uh, love it and fix it. Just because something has changed doesn't mean it's the best idea. Change. Some people say, you know, all change is good. Not all changes are not good. And hopefully as we go on, we can make changes that are good because we can always improve. We can always make things better. I think time's usually the best judge of that. It's like if, if we if if what we said here that all counterculture is absorbed, again we would say that the neo-Nazi movements in the South, where people march in the streets preaching against people of color, preaching against Jews, uh, saying blood and soil whites should have the Aryan race should rise again. We'd say that that's going to become mainstream again. Uh, I think that, and you know, might be showing my bias here, but those people have a platform. They have a voice in America, and that voice should be protected. Even if it's racist, even if it's disgusting to me and to many others, it should be protected because they can say it, but people have to listen and act on it to make it stick. And until that small group is in the majority, they will always be a minority that makes little change. At least I hope it stays that way, and that's my own personal opinion. I don't know how much of minority I mean, maybe marching in the street and being that active about it, but. You, I mean, yeah, and it's it, that kind of change I don't want to see. And hopefully that kind of change won't stick. There's a lot of change that people are preaching for that I want to. And if I use my voice and my power, I can make, we can make that change. Well, I just hope that the fringe doesn't make us cringe when we see the final product, you know? I mean, it's neither here nor there at this point. And you know, right now we're still at a very, uh, when you're going through something, you may see maybe a better future. Uh, others may see that what your view is not necessarily a, a positive thing. And the good thing is, as of right now, we still have the ability to talk about these things, implement changes, and that when we're doing this, hopefully we're not end up in a gulag. All right, I'd say that's a good point to end on no gulags in America, 2024. Or in a cage. <laughs> no cages in America. Uh, I'm Alex Simmons. It's been a lot of fun. Matt Norling, have a great day.
Jose Garcia, I'm out. Patrick Mollahan, take care.